Welcome to GeekSpeak. I'm Lyle Troxel. I've been hosting this program now for 20 years. That's right. This week celebrates 20 years of me hosting GeekSpeak, of having conversations with really interesting people. Lots of conversations with lots of interesting people. And I thought to celebrate this 20 years, why not contact a few of them, get in touch, see how they're doing, and have some interesting geeky conversations with them. This episode will be with Ben Jaffe. Ben Jaffe is a close personal friend of mine. He currently works at Netflix. You've probably heard the last episodes in the last few years. We've talked a bit about his migration from Facebook to Netflix. He's an expert in music as well. He just finished a five and a half year project of a podcast called Linear Digressions, which is an amazing machine learning podcast. And I just want to catch up with him, find out why he stopped doing that podcast, his thoughts around that. And also then we dive into his current passion, which is playing the cello, and all about how difficult it is to play instruments that don't have frets. And you'll find out more about that in the second half. So here is my conversation with Ben Jaffe. Yeah, right. It's true. I was just looking at the history of GeekSpeak, and we kind of have a database that has most shows. And the first show that denotes you being on GeekSpeak was October 27th, 2007. I'm not really sure if that was the first episode you joined, but that's the first one I have the database set up for. That was a long time ago. Yeah, that was a long time ago. Um, and for years, you were on pretty much every week. And and for years, it was a radio show, not a podcast. <laughs> it was a radio show uh, until 2016 when the station went off air. It was a radio show. So that's, you know, at least nine years of being on the radio, mostly mm-hmm. weekly for you. Yeah. I'm. Uh, this week is a big date for me as well, because August 2000 is when I started doing GeekSpeak. So this week is 20 years of me doing GeekSpeak. Oh, wow. Congratulations. Thank you. Do you know what the first day was? The first show that I have recorded, which is the second time I ever did it, was August 14th, 2000. All right. We talked about optical drives. Oh, wow. What's an optical drive? (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I could go back in time and listen to that and learn something. Kind of interesting. John Tracy and Sean Cleveland joined me on that episode. Mm -hmm. And I was hosting, but I don't think I was running the board. Maybe I was running the board on this one, but it's funny going back and listening to it because I sound so nervous and concerned. Were you? Before... I spent, well, I, my voice sounds kind of like concerned and, you know, mm. yeah, I guess so. <laughs> but um, during that time and actually just this last week, uh, you've, you've run a, a really amazing podcast about artificial intelligence called Linear Digressions. Yeah, about machine learning and data science, I would say. I guess that's um, a better way to think about it. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know anything about artificial intelligence. <laughs> when did you first start that show? Uh, that was... Five and a half years ago, maybe almost six years ago. Um, yeah, I was working at Udacity, which is an online education company. And uh, my co-host of Linear Regressions, Katie, was also working there. And we ended up just having a random conversation. She had heard that I did podcasting, you know, with GeekSpeak. And she had been thinking about starting a podcast about data science and machine learning. Because in the process of making the course that that Udacity hired her to make, she found all of these bits and bobs and odds and ends that didn't have a place in the course, but were really interesting things. And so, uh, so yeah, we went into a conference room and we recorded our first episode, which was garbage. And then we re-recorded our first episode, which was much less garbage. That's always how it happens. And... Uh, 
yeah, we uh, we actually wrapped up linear digressions after five and a half years and 293 episodes. If you count the reruns, I don't know what it would be without the reruns, but probably somewhere around 270 something. And you did that weekly. Uh, yeah, every week, actually for a while, bi-weekly. Wow. And the final episode was July 26th of 2020 this year. So long and thanks for all the fish. It's true. I it is true. It yet. Yeah. Um, it's Tell been... me, why did why'd you stop? Well, okay. So, frankly, uh, I my job on the show was as kind of a foil to Katie and the information that she had and the expertise that she had. Like, I don't know anything about machine learning. I don't know anything about data science. The only things I know about those two topics are what I have learned by doing the show and i've forgotten a lot of it too so my job was really just to show up and turn on my microphone and ask questions to try to make the subject a little bit more accessible perhaps for people who Mm -hmm. are not already in the field more more conversational and less luxury definitely yeah and Mm -hmm. uh katie kind of did the heavy lifting in the podcast because she had the information she knew what topics were interesting. She did the research and read the papers and and like prepared the material. And then she also did the editing to to take our conversation and try to sculpt it into something that was a little bit more pared down. But that's still a lot of work. To edit that. Yeah, yeah, it's it's it was a lot of work. It was a lot of time. And um, she uh, at some point, I guess, felt like we've said what we wanted to say, like we've covered Mm -hmm. a bunch of topics, uh, this long list of topics we had to cover. And then we went and searched for some other topics and found those and covered those. (laughs) 290 of them. At some point you run out of topics, you know? Uh, And we could have kind of kept doing it in perpetuity, but at some point, at some point you say like, okay, we've accomplished our objective. And um, yeah. So long. And thanks for all the fish. (laughs) How do you feel about it ending? Does it feel like a relief? Is it, is it sadness? Is it mixed? It's interesting. Um, when when Katie and I had the conversation about learning regressions uh, and wrapping it up, I kind of felt like, yeah, absolutely, sure. I don't have any problem with that, you know? Uh, because I, I didn't really feel like, how could I have a problem? How could I say, hey, Katie, you need to keep doing all of this work and I'll just keep showing up and turning on my microphone and that's all I'll do, you know? <laughs> Um, but, uh, I don't know. It's, it's been an interesting process reflect, reflecting now that it's ended. We've gotten Mm -hmm. a number of emails from people who have never written to us before saying, oh my gosh, thank you for the show. Or like, I was going through a rough time in my life and every day, you know, driving to and from work, I listened to the podcast and it, it helped me through. Or I was in this unrelated field and it helped me uh, bring, this podcast helped me bring some of those things into my field. Or some people said, I changed my professional trajectory because of this show. And I, I think I knew in some abstract sense that that probably was the case for some people because we had... Uh, I mean, before people stopped commuting to work because of COVID, we were getting around 20,000 listeners mm-hmm. per per episode. So I, I figured that's probably the case. You know, that's a lot of people. 
but actually hearing some people's stories as they've written in that that was really moving and and really interesting uh i still feel like it's a good time to wrap it up Mm. um but it's been interesting reflecting on the impact that the show has had that has up until till now been invisible yeah it's interesting with those kind of figures with like you know an audience that size you could run ads take in revenue and then like hire somebody to edit or even organize it had you had you two talked about that or do you want to share those thoughts we had talked about that um and it it didn't really feel like a thing we wanted to make money on it didn't really feel like a thing we wanted to bring sponsorship into um I don't know. I I guess it definitely changes the tone, right? It changes the tone, and I I certainly don't want to be, you know, reading scripts for mm-hmm. for advertisers. And like, I I don't mean to say anything negative about podcasts that do that. Like that is currently the main way that people monetize podcasts. Sure. Uh, I think it's unfortunate. It's just the the truth of where we are in our society. You know, yeah. like. Facebook's free, Google's free. Why is it free? Because you're actually paying for it in your eyeballs on advertisement. And um, so, yeah, I mean, we we thought about it, but I think that both Katie and I felt that we didn't really want to go down that road. We would mm-hmm. rather just produce it as long as it felt good to produce it and then yeah. stop when it didn't. I, I feel like my egotism might just keep me going like i think i sometimes wonder about that with geek speak you know i haven't i've been producing episodes maybe once a month a little bit, a little bit less in the last yeah. couple of years because of all those shows i'm doing and i wonder like if it, it doesn't it, at one point had an audience base like that um at this point it doesn't i think geek speak's got uh under two thousand uh listeners per episode so it's kind of small it's still more successful than like 90 percent of podcasts lots of podcasts have you know 20 listeners you know that. you could say um our listenership is a more exclusive club now exactly <laughs> definitely is you have to be really committed to want to listen to us to to keep listening yeah <laughs> but i um so i think if i were in that kind of higher figure i'd feel uh i don't know something better about it though i do have shows at that level right the we are yeah. netflix podcast has a has a high count i don't know the actual figures but um yeah so i think that i i might be motivated by the egotistical feeling of like being i don't know liked by people or something yeah um well how do, do you, you measure that though I don't know. It's something I always kind of trouble, like, what's my motivation on something? Why am I doing this? You know? Yeah, yeah. I recently revamped my personal website. I actually took over the family domain name and and promote just me now there at troxel.com. And I list the four podcasts, mostly because people said, you, you do podcasts? What are they? And I, I'd have to go through the list and try to teach them how to find them. And so I was like, you know, just go to this my domain name. Yeah. You can find all the podcasts I do. Um, and that was nice. But then I look at it and go, you know, who is this guy? <laughs> What a what an egotist, you know, like pointing off this. But I think it's it's about, you know, if we invest time in creating things, you kind of want to make it available for other people to see it or hear it. Well, I I, I've been thinking about this a lot with my music because I I play a lot of music. I I compose um, and then I've been thinking like, oh, well, maybe I should make an album or I should, you know, like record these things and release them. And the thing that usually stops me is like, okay, but, but why, you know, like mm-hmm. what's, what is the point? And unfortunately that line of thought very quickly becomes philosophical and then existential. <laughs> and 
<laughs> so I try not to think about it too hard because uh, you very quickly get to, well, why do anything? Right. Um, but, uh, but yeah, like, I don't know what, what is, what is motivation and, and I don't know, d- does it, why do certain motivations matter to us and other yeah. motivations don't? There's some kind of judgment call on whether motivations are good or not. I think that you said something really interesting about linear digressions is that you and Katie are doing it. You're not pulling revenue in. You do it because, well, you're enjoying doing it. So that to me is a great, that's a great motivator for that can be the reason. For years I did geek speak and we were, I was doing it because that was the time to spend time with friends. I'd see you once a week. You know, that was good enough for me. And yeah. then there was a bit of a commitment to the radio station. And, you know, the, the truth is that the radio station had audience base and, and donations and all this work that was necessary to keep it going. And I Blood kind of drives. Yeah. And I liked the station being there as a community resource. It felt like a good thing, especially when a, a strategy would happen to be able to go off air and be like, there's a fire and, and they would cover that, that kind of geographic news source was always a, a cool thing to participate in. So that yeah. felt like a good motivation. Um, and then, uh, you know, a local radio station started up in, in Boulder Creek and, uh, and because they were looking for people, I was like, I'll do that. And f- I did that for about six months, mm. a lot of work to do those shows. And I found that I was losing the enjoyment factor um, because it, it didn't have a location. I could meet with people. I wasn't doing lunches after. I was just kind of cobbling it together. Interesting. So I like that you both were like doing it because you liked it and it's time to stop. That seems like a gr- those, you don't, you don't have to question those motivations, right? Yeah. It's just something that you you kind of key into how you're feeling and take a, I mean, I think it's important obviously to take a weighted average over the course of several weeks, yeah. uh, lest you be impulsive. But, but yeah, I don't know. It, it's like, what are the motivations is always a really strange question for me. Yeah. Um, because I think that there, there are conscious motivations and there are unconscious motivations. And I think that, providing so like once we were in it and doing it every week i feel like the main motivation was actually that i have been doing this and this is what i do and it's on my calendar like that that's not really a motivation but that was kind of what drove me to do it is i've always been doing this and i'm going to continue doing this because this is what i do you're Um, talking about momentum as a motivation factor yeah inertia And then you look back and you say, okay, well, why did I record that episode? Oh, well, we want to, you know, create a, a space for education and like, but I think that's kind of back justification. I think that was, mm. that was the justification for me, at least for initially starting the show. Yeah. And, uh, but how, um, I guess if you're divorced from the actual impact, like, I don't know what 20,000 people listening actually means. I, mm-hmm. I don't, I I can't imagine that in my head, you know? Um, so the, because podcasting is such a removed medium, you produce it in some closet somewhere. Uh, it's hard to connect it to the real world impact. And so it's hard to, to really say in good faith in this moment, my justification is this thing because yeah. you can't even picture it at least that's my take on it i feel like there's a bit of a loss in that that resource is not available that all these people were interested in what you both had to say and discuss uh, about you know machine learning and to some degree it feels that way at the same time it also is this wonderful archive are you planning on keeping these episodes around so people can do 
Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, uh, saying it's no longer available is, I don't feel, that doesn't feel quite right because all of the, all of the episodes, the entire arc um, of everything that we've recorded, that's all still available. I think that over time, some of the episodes will become less relevant. Mm -hmm. Uh, and some of the episodes will continue to be relevant. Like, you know, you want to know what a Markov chain is, there's an episode on that and some applications of it. When I was doing Geek Speak at KOSP, the radio station, I remember at one point, I think it was when I maybe had my second child or something, I had to take some time off and the the rest of the geeks kind of stepped in and hosted the show for a while. And I think when I started at Netflix for a while, I, I didn't have the bandwidth and so somebody else kind of did it. In my mind, it was always like, well, I'll definitely pass this show off. I'll get somebody else to take over the show and continue it to be the way it is. And I think that was more when I was thinking about it as a finite resource because radio, you know, radio broadcast actually is kind of finite, geographically finite. Um, so over time, that actually morphed to like not matter. Anybody that wants to start a podcast can do that. There's no, and since it's not associated with the radio station, there's no finite resource in any way anyway. So for a oh, long time, okay. I felt like I'd take the, I'd take somebody else, they'd take over the show and I'd let, and I'd step back and continue it. There's this thing that's hard to do it's hard to start up a thing like a radio show. It's very easy to start up a thing like a podcast. And so mm-hmm. when podcasting became the the primary thing and then eventually the only thing after the after the station went away, you're saying that that, that inertia piece of it, like why keep GeekSpeak going, that justification was no longer as valid. Uh, slightly different than that. Mm-hmm. When it was a radio station show, I imagine myself getting less and less interested in maybe producing content that wasn't as good. Um, or not doing it all the time, running more reruns. And I was taking a slot of 88.9 FM, the frequency that broadcasts, and I was filling it with whatever content I produced. So I had an obligation to the community to make sure that the content that was in there was really good. I if see. I would to get disinterested, I'd have somebody else take over the show and they'd fill that spot with something really good. So that was the limited resource aspect of it. I over see. time, because the station went away and everything, now it's like, well, if I produce one episode a month, that's fine. There's no, you don't, people don't have to subscribe. I'm not taking away from anybody. I'm not removing some resources or being greedy. So are you saying that there's not a reason, there wouldn't ever be a reason to say, this is the last episode, we're capping it? No, I, I definitely had that feeling. In fact, earlier in the year, I was thinking about doing that at the 20th. Like this would be the time I would just close the show. But what's happened is because I do so much podcasting, um, I'm always interested in technology. And when I want to talk about technology, this is the podcast to do that on. Because people that are interested in like how things work listen to this podcast. So my other podcasts are not as um, not structured like that. So I, I kind of had some thoughts on um, how motors kind of work or how chainsaws work. And I wanted to kind of share those ideas. And so I put that as the last episode. And then, you know, you're talking about ending a, a podcast felt like a good place to talk about it on GeekSpeak. So because I like those discussions and there's a spot for it, I'll just keep it going uh, with that kind of content. That's right. kind of why I want to hold on to it. That makes sense. It's a very different show than it used to be. You know, it used to be that we would cram as much news stories about technology as we could in an mm. hour. Um, and that, that had a rewarding quality about it, but also repetitive quality about it for me. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But I feel like the linear directions, you know, you do have an audience of 20,000 people that like this kind of content and you theoretically could find somebody else to host a show about this kind of content and let that audience keep going. That's a complicated thing, right? Because like, what, what is the responsibility that podcast hosts Yep. Or creators have to their audience. You could ask the same thing about open source. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, you make an open source library, you publish it, 
And then suddenly you find that a lot of people want to use it and everyone starts using it. People file issues and bug reports. And then you feel like, well, I should fix this bug because otherwise it's going to affect other people. Uh, but then you find yourself kind of drowning under this in this sea of GitHub tickets. Yeah. <laughs> It sounds like you know what you're talking about there. <laughs> maybe some maybe some Chrome extension you might have made yeah, one day. Maybe. <laughs> well, it wasn't a sea of GitHub tickets, uh, no. thankfully. But but I did feel like, okay, yeah, so I, I, I did work on a Chrome extension that had somewhere in the realm of 12,000 users. And I felt uh, the, the website it worked on kept changing their UI, and so that kept breaking the extension. So then I had to decide every time, do I want to spend between... 15 minutes and 10 hours who knows how long it's going to take to fix it on fixing it this time or do i want to just kind of let it go away and the similarity between like potentially putting another host on linear regressions is that if you were to say well i'll just take this extension that all these people are using and pass it off to some other developer then all of a sudden you have this weird responsibility that you're like wait is that person's going to be the same level of trust that i am yeah how do i make sure that i'm I'm doing the right thing. Same thing if you hand it off to another guest. What if they decide to put a whole bunch of ads in it? And all of a sudden you're like, okay, do I feel good about taking a whole bunch of people into this place and then putting them off to somebody else? Yeah. 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 I mean, I guess one is a little bit worse because, you know, you can do credit card theft with a Chrome extension. Yeah, <laughs> definitely. You can't really do that with a podcast as far as I know. Well, I don't know. You could mislead people. I mean, That's there's true. a bit of, you, you've empowered a, a, a voice. I think that, one of the things that motivates me, and I, I, I'm not sure about the core motivation, but I understand it. Um, I really do like interviewing people around technology. I, I find it fascinating. I like interviewing people in general. I've had some real, I, I feel like when I do the um, We Are Netflix podcast and I record interview people that I don't know about their job and I have to research it and maybe read their book and, and learn all about who they are and then do the interview, I, I really get a lot out of that helping somebody else's story kind of be unfolded. It gives me a high the rest of the day. And then when the episode goes out, I'm really proud of it. And that's been happening with the, uh, the art of change podcast. And, mm -hmm. and I mean, pretty much all the podcasts I do, I enjoy the process of making it. I enjoy a bit of the editing it and I enjoy releasing it into the world and seeing what happens. Yeah. Those things feel really good to me. I'm also continually disappointed on the level of commitment I can make to it that reduces the amount I do. So I think part of the motivation of like growing an audience and getting a lot of people listening to me was this idea of what kind of content I could produce. Like the We Are Netflix podcast has gotten really good. You know, there's a full-time editor that works on it. There's people that help organize the the guest, the, the producer who runs it. Um, it. It's made it so that when I sit down and do a recording and have a conversation, that really meaty part that I love to do, I get to really invest my time in it. Um, I'd love to be able to do that more, right? And I think that's the the reason why I listen to that you've got all these listeners and you let go of them as like, oh, but that would allow you to maybe transition to another stage of doing things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But the truth is, you know, you or I making the same kind of living we have uh, as software engineers, it'd be very hard to do that with audio. Oh, uh, like make the kind of salary that you make in mm -hmm. software with podcasting? Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I think also it would be strange if money was the motivator. I think that right. there are people who do it really well. Like there, there are 
groups of podcasts, what do they call them? Networks or, or something mm-hmm. of, of podcasters that do that really well. Um, but I think, I think that's kind of hard to do, you know, cause you, you probably need ads pretty much definitely do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you need to find a way to make that work without, um, I guess, yeah. compromising your own values. I mean, Radiotopia is a great example there, right? This group right. in Oakland that's producing a lot of shows. 98% Invisible is probably the most famous, but they've got quite a bit of uh, shows that are fantastic. And those are lovely podcasts, and I like listening yeah. to them and, yeah. and all of that. Um, I doubt that any of them are making Netflix kind of senior software engineer salaries. I could be wrong. Um, but, yeah, I, I agree that it's nice that I don't have to think about it as my profession, that I can do it for the joy aspect. There's something really liberating about that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, one thing that came up for me is I guess I'm not really much of a podcaster anymore. <laughs> you know, like, I mean, I come on here and I talk to you and yeah, I I usually do a good job keeping my mouth the correct distance from the microphone. <laughs> um. Although looking at the gain levels on on the machine right now, I feel like I should have bumped I'll mine up. Post, don't worry about it, man. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, it's it's interesting. Like h- how much? So here's a question for you: How much of your identity do you tie to? I mean, I could ask the gen- generic question of the mm-hmm. things you do, but specifically podcasting or yeah. or interviewing, maybe. That, that subcomponent of podcasting, how much of your identity do you tie to that? Well, when you say your identity, I mean, if I, th- if I think about it from a public persona, it's a really high level. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, probably the second or third thing I tell someone when I'm meeting them. Um, I think it was, I think it has to do with people being able to relate to you and make a connection with people. You know, so if I meet somebody in my neighborhood, I tell them, you know, where I live or where I grew up or, Maybe they're like, oh, I think I, your name sounds familiar. I'll say, oh, well, the theater company my parents founded, you know, about this and or the radio station. So a lot of that has to do with, you know, making a connection with somebody. Um, and then pretty much anybody I find interesting, I, I end up wanting to interview them and having on the show. And I don't act upon that as much as I used to. Um, but it used to be a great way to, to meet people. I remember years ago when I figured out this pattern. I was on, I was doing Geekspeak on KOSP and I really wanted to learn about digital photography. My father was a photographer, a, you know, a print photographer and the digital age of photography was just kind of coming online. It was starting to become cameras that were valuable and stuff. So I decided to just learn about it. And I did that by just interviewing every author that had a book about digital photography. Oh, interesting. That's how yeah. you did it? Yeah. And so I got to oh. become really knowledgeable and connected to the community of people that were doing this early work of asset management systems and stuff. And I I've done that a lot where I just kind of get interested in the topic and I dive into it. I remember when JavaScript with Ajax was starting to come a thing. Do you remember what Ajax was? Uh-huh. Yeah. The early stages of like letting JavaScript run your web app. Um, Ajax was kind of the definition of that ability. I, I won't get into the details of it. But um, I interviewed a couple of people that had written books on it. And I, I've done that over the years. And so is it my identity? In some ways, it's kind of like an extension of what I, I do. So yeah, I, I think when you do something continually for 20 years, it becomes a big part of who you are. Yeah. Yeah, I definitely feel that. But I would say that the doing radio for 20 years has been a thing I've been using for a while. And also that I do the We Are Netflix podcast has been a big thing. Because people 
can understand that. Wait, you've only been doing radio for 20 years for the last couple of days. <laughs> yeah, I've been saying like two decades for you a while. Math for, rounded. For a year and a half or so, yeah. No, you got to math that floor. <laughs> well, I can this week. <laughs> yeah, that's true. <laughs> I, you know, I taught that course for the art podcast uh, earlier in the year in January. Yeah. And at that time, I said I've been doing it for about two decades. So I'd always phrase it that way. About, okay. That's yeah. good. That's yeah. good. Now it's official two decades. Except that it's not, right? It's not really radio. I haven't, the last four years hasn't been radio. It's been podcasting. And when I say I've been doing a podcast for 20 years, like people, smart people go, what? <laughs> you can't do that. Podcasting got created in 2004. What are you talking about? Uh-huh. <laughs> huh. Broadcast media? Yeah, broadcast radio. Is, I, is I, podcasting's broadcast? radio, right? Yeah. Well, um, yeah. <laughs> Well, this I mean, is definitely, like, there's yeah. internet radio. Yeah. So if you call internet radio radio, then yeah. I normally call it long form interviews. That's kind of what I do. All right. Yeah. It oh, doesn't matter. Is this a long form interview of me? Because <laughs> I've been interviewing you. Yeah, we go back and forth. That's because you act as a host as well. But also, it's so funny that, yeah. I feel like you and I have done a lot of the Geek Speak episodes over the last couple of years because we both work at Netflix and we did that whole discussion. Yeah, so yeah it's easy that, when you could just walk down the hall in the office. When that was a thing. Wait, is there an office? Did I dream that? Did I make it all up? Yeah, it's really strange. In, in COVID times, I don't, like, I don't even have the potential of running into you randomly. Yeah. We have to plan for it. Yeah. Ben, what have you been learning lately? Mm. Uh, how long do you have? <laughs> I I rented a cello from the violin store down the street. So I've been playing that. And I, I've learned a couple things. First of all, I've learned that... So I play a bunch of instruments. And so I... I can, it's kind of like when, when you speak a lot of languages, which I don't, I have heard it's a lot easier to pick up the the next language. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the same is true for instruments. So cello is the first fretless instrument that I've ever played. And uh, that means that there, there aren't those little metallic strips that go across that force your note to be an actual note. You mm-hmm. can instead just play a frequency, a pitch. And if you place your fingers in the correct places, then those are notes. And if you place your fingers in the incorrect places, then those are uh, sounds. <laughs> so uh, isn't that a lot harder? Yes, it is. But it's actually a lot easier if you're playing a cello, like a stand-up bass, where you're just plucking the string, because then your note has um, it, it has an attack and then a decay, as opposed to if you're using a bow, where you sustain the note for a longer time. And with sustained notes, the human brain is a lot better at realizing, oh, that's very off. Uh-huh. But if you're just plucking a note and you're off, and then the next note is on, then you know people are pretty forgiving, um, including my own brain. I have also Aren't... learned playing with a bow is darn near impossible. It's so hard. 
Okay, first, a couple questions here. Stand-up basses that are used in, like, uh, rock band kind of environment or jazz band, whatever. Stand-up bass. That has has frets, right? No, no. Oh, okay. Now, stand-up bass is fretless as well. Oh, interesting. All right, so uh, back to this, you haven't played instruments that are fretless. The the, um, brass instrument that is fretless, if you will, that doesn't have valves (laughs) is a trombone. Have you played that? Uh, yeah. So I did. I bought a pink plastic trombone. And that was really hard because... So the the thing about brass instruments, and j- just like prefacing this by saying, I don't know what I'm talking about because I okay, only good. currently play trumpet. But with brass instruments, you've got um, you've got two pieces, right? You've got what your lips are doing and what your fingers are doing, like how they're controlling the valves, which effectively lengthens the um, the tubing or shortens the tubing. And Making kind of a different coerces, harmonic. And therefore, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it kind of coerces the pitch into a particular pitch. So if you, if you um, with your fingers, if you play a C, and then with your lips, you try to play a different note, it's going to be harder to do. Um, if you have really good lip control, you can kind of fudge it and make it happen. But... Ideally, your fingers and your lips are doing the same type of thing, mm-hmm. and you end up with this nice, sonorous, beautiful note. This this sounds very similar to saxophone, which is the instrument I'm familiar with the most, is that you, you have to get your mouth... You can actually do a harmonic shift by changing your mouth and not changing your fingers at all. Well, you can pitch and, and, bend it down. Yeah. But trumpet is different because as you are fingering different notes and le- effectively lengthening the tube... Your your lips play different harmonics depending on which notes you want to play. But as you actually lengthen the tube, your lips actually loosen, even though you're mm-hmm. still playing the same harmonic. And I didn't realize that when I bought the pink trombone. So with the pink trombone, you have a problem, which is that with the trumpet, you've got... Uh, you've got this granularity with your fingers. Let's clarify for people that don't understand the difference between these instruments. The trumpet has three valves or four valves on it. Three valves. And therefore have piping for the three valves and you can open them in any combination and you get different lengths. So it's a on-off kind of thing. The trombone is the one that has the big slide thing in the arm that you can move back and forth. Right. It also has valves, yeah? Uh, no. No valves. Okay. So it's just, you it lengthen has, it by changing it. So it has an infinite variation of tone, like the fretless uh, cello, which we were talking about earlier. Okay, go on. Yeah, it has a spit valve. Which so this pink trombone you've got. Okay. Yeah, good. So this pink trombone that you got. Yeah. So the, the problem is you've got granularity with the trumpet with your fingers, and you don't have granularity with your lips. Right. Like as you loosen or tighten your lips, they don't lock into certain notes. You just, right. <laughs> you know, just, <laughs> um, and that's different with a reed instrument because all you're really controlling with a reed instrument, you don't change the frequency I'm, that the reed vibrates. I'm you getting the pretty disoriented limit. talking about reeds versus versus brass because uh, they're very different modes. But yeah. but just to finish up on the trombone bit. The thing that's really hard about trombone, I realized, especially as my first brass instrument, is I'm coming into this without any kind of lip control. I don't have a clue how to deal with the lips. And then I'm I'm playing what I'm doing with my, with my hands. There's no granularity there either. And so mm-hmm. because both of them are not granular, my lips and my, and my arm, uh, I can't... 
I can't be certain that either of them is ever correct. You're not training one isolated from the other. Yes, exactly. Ah, yeah. With trumpet, I can just play one note with my fingers, and then I can adjust my lips until I'm playing the right thing. Right. Can't do that with trombone, really. So would you assume from your lack of experience with brass instruments that playing like a French horn or a trumpet would be an easier thing to start than a trombone because Uh, of the mouth? If it's your first instrument, I would say so. I would say don't do French horn, though. I mean, if you're interested, I can tell you why. Um, oh, can I? Let me see. You know what? I've got. I know somebody that plays the French horn. So if I really want to dive into that subject, I'll, I'll invite him on. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Just, just in a nutshell, with trumpets, the harmonics that you're that you're that typically typically playing are the lower harmonics. So there's a lot more distance between them, and so okay. it's easier to play your first harmonic or your second harmonic or your third harmonic but with trump with um french French horn horn. you're playing higher harmonics and they're closer together and so it's really hard to stay on the correct harmonic interesting and that's why french horns are always flubbing their notes in beginner orchestras i love that you uh, i've got a few things that on the pan here but i love that you think of the note spacing as closer together in higher frequencies well even in higher harmonics cons- in higher harmonics harmonics in, yeah e- even though when you are you're mapping a spatial pattern to sound which Logarithmic. sure there there are spaces in sound but that has to do with frequency uh you know the frequency harmonic right like so but it seems to be that you're spacing it in some other space concept or you think of it in spatially I don't think of music spatially very much. Oh, so higher notes you don't think of as more to the right or up? I think of them as like a keyboard, you know, because a piano, yeah. I grew up with a piano. And therefore, I do think of higher as more to the right because that's how a piano keyboard works. Yeah. But I don't think of the notes as closer together harmonically, well, though I understand what you're saying. Well... With the harmonic series is specifically what I'm talking about. So, like, the harmonic series, if you're playing, let's say, uh, 440 hertz, which is an A, then you're, or let's say 220, you're playing 220, your next harmonic is going to be 440, which is an octave difference. That's that's um, eight whole steps. That's a lot, right? And then your second harmonic is going to be 660, then 880, then 11, whatever it is. Mm-hmm. So you're going up by 220, uh, 220 hertz for every harmonic. And because of the way that law lo- that um, sound is logarithmically measured in the scale, the notes themselves are getting closer together. So your notes would be ba, 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 ba. I can't See, think that When high. you say getting them closer together, that's because you're math you're not thinking about them uh, logarithmic the entire time because logarithmically they never get closer together they're all logarithmically always the same distance if you think at a log scale uh well the harmonic series is linear the harmonic series is linear mapped on a log scale exactly okay there that's yeah. why you that's why you say that okay, thank you so if you do 100 hertz it's 100 hertz 200 hertz 300 hertz 400 hertz 500 hertz all the way up those linear. would be the notes that you're playing on the trumpet if you start at 100 hertz. And so the higher you get, the more the... the Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, the closer they are comparatively from uh, everything. Yeah, I get If that. you were to play them on a keyboard or something. Okay. 
thank you for all of that. The other thing <laughs> I wanted to note was I, I felt like there was something else. I had stopped there for a second. I think it was the spatial thing. That's interesting. Yeah. Um, um, oh, the other thing I was going to say is that yes. is it possible that because you have kind of a really good pitch ear that it's harder for you to play something like a trombone because getting it slightly off, you can hear so well? Mm, no, I don't think that's it. So I, I have, I have really good relative pitch, and mm. if there's no sound around me, and I close my eyes, and I and I imagine I'm sitting in front of a piano, then I have perfect pitch. I basically have really crappy perfect pitch. <laughs> uh, but if I'm playing a trombone, then like, I I might be just flat in all of my notes and my brain will not identify it. Right. But it will, it will identify differentiation. It will get, if you played a hundred Hertz and then you played 200 Hertz, but in fact you played a hundred Hertz and then uh, 190, whatever uh, yeah, right. you would know, right? Mm, I could do the same maybe. thing and I might not even know that I'm totally, you know, off a little bit. Yeah. So it'd be easier for me to play without self doubt. <laughs> I can I'd drift. sound bad. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I can drift. And so, yeah. The only the only granularity you have on a trombone is your slide is all the way in. Like you can tell Bombs where out. that is because literally the slide cannot go further in. And that is, let's say, your home base. So if I'm playing something on trombone and I keep ending up on that, um, I don't know what it's called, first position or mm -hmm. zeroth position, uh, I keep landing there, then it's easy for me to not drift because mm -hmm. I keep having a home base. But if I am if I start there and then I kind of go off and I play a bunch of other positions and I'm not 100% certain I'm playing the positions correctly, then I might drift and just everything I'm playing starts to get a little flat or a little sharp. Have you found that the cello is easier or harder than... Because in the cello, of course, you don't have the concern about your armature, your lips. Oh, yeah. Well, you have the concern about the bow. The bow is just the, it's so hard. It's so hard because, because so here are the variables with, with a bow and you have to get them all right. <laughs> if you don't get them all right, then something weird happens um, and you get strange sounds. There is, uh, where on the string are you playing? Changes the timbre of the, the instrument, the sound. Um, where on the string? On the string. Linearly or, or, or around? Like vertically. Let's say vertically. you're holding a cello. Where uh -huh. is the bow touching the string? Is it really close down toward the bridge or is it okay. up higher? Um, closer to the bridge, you're going to get a harsher sound and it's going to be harder to play in a pretty way. Up, up higher, it's going to be a softer sound. Um, there is where on the bow is the string touching? Because if you mm -hmm. think about it, you're holding the bow on one side of the bow, right? And so you're going to be able to put pressure on the string uh, with that side of the bow a lot more easily than if you're trying to put pressure on the far end of the of the bow because you're mm -hmm. holding it on the other side. And so your brain needs to compensate for that. There's the speed. How fast are you moving the bow? Uh, there is the angle of the bow. So how much bow is in contact with the string? Meaning the bow is kind of a flat of string, of, of hair. Yeah. And that flat could be pressed up against or you could lift, you could tilt it and only hit part of the string, part of it. Yes. But okay. that changes if you're in the middle of the bow versus at either end. So there's because another there's more variable that there's more f the, the bow is less taut towards the middle? Yeah, right. Okay. Um, there is the tautness of the bow, which the, I don't know how to set properly. So I just And guess. then there's 
and then there's also friction, right? How much how much uh, wax you have on it? Not wax. What is uh, it? Yeah, uh, resin. Resin. Yeah. Resin. Yeah. So how much wow. have you resined it up properly? And then there's also how hard are you pressing? Yeah. Um. So imagine <laughs> trying to get all of those. Oh, oh, I forgot. There's also what angle relative to the relative to the plane that is perpendicular to the strings. Yes. Uh, is your bow along that plane or are you tilting a little bit? The, the fuzzier way of saying it is, is your bow parallel to the floor or is it kind of tilted? But it's actually not the floor because the, the cello is at a slight angle. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you don't want to get that and, wrong. And that's, and, that's not, and that's different compared to the string plane and the bow plane? Right. Meaning that... It's, Relative oh, okay. to the floor, that that would be the same if the strings were going straight up and down. Right. But if you tilt the cello, you really actually want to keep the bow perpendicular to the string. Right. But but um, is that different than the tilt? Yeah, that's different than the tilt of the bow, yep. meaning how much of the hair is actually hit. Yes. That's a lot of things, Ben. There's also... Have you played violin? Have you played... No, I know. I don't think I'm ever going to play violin. <laughs> um, I, I'm almost done. I got to also say, depending on at what angle, uh, different angle now, now it's the angle. Um, I don't know how to describe this on the radio, but um, the which string is the bow touching? Yes, or strings. Which string or which strings, right? So imagine trying to do all of that while also trying to... <laughs> Finger Figure out where your finger the right place uh, with your left hand, and possibly even do some vibrato, where you jiggle your finger back and forth in a way that's extremely not intuitive, wow. and you try to do that while continuing moving the bow linearly. It's kind of like if you—I I don't know if you had this experience like I did—but do you remember the first time someone said, uh, "Try and pat your head and rub your belly yes. at the same time." Sure. And it's just like your brain breaks okay. for a little while, and then mm-hmm. you eventually get it, and then you can do it. That's the, the one that I do now with people when I'm trying to show that you can train yourself to do things like that is the uh, make a large circle with one hand and then use your other finger. So you take your finger and you point it to one direction, and you make a large circle. And then you take your other hand, and you make small opposite direction circles around the larger circle, around oh. the one that's moving as well. So the reason I do that one is that pat your head and rub your belly can turn into rub your hair and you can mess up your hair and it gets all painfully. So cello is hard. That seems really hard, Ben. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's damn near impossible. So I'm, I'm renting it for three months. <laughs> we'll see how far I get, but I'll, I'll tell you, it takes some discipline to pick up the bow because it's, it's so much easier to just make music as a stand-up bass kind of thing. <laughs> Um, one of the thought I had during this whole discussion is that maybe your um, pink trombone is not actually a really good instrument and that the instrument quality could impress upon you a better desire to play it more. I've seen YouTube videos of professional trombonists making beautiful music with these pink trombones. Yeah, but that does not take away from what I'm saying. Yeah, that's true. Is this, is this trombone a metal instrument or is it a plastic no, instrument? No, it's plastic. It, it is true that you could make really beautiful instruments on a pretty crappy keyboard if you wanted to, Ben. Yeah. But playing a nice piano definitely feels better, right? That is true. So it might be that. Anyway, if you get fed up with the cello, maybe you should rent a trombone. <laughs> rent a real <laughs> trombone. I'll put that in air quotes. Yeah, so that that is one of the many things that I'm 
that I'm working on learning. It's uh, I've been making vegan meat and vegan cheese. Tofu-based, nut-based? Uh, yes. Cool. Also lentil-based and um, chickpea-based and uh, wheat gluten-based. Yeah, it's it's been kind of a weird obsession of mine recently. Well, maybe we'll maybe we'll talk about some of the making of food things the next time we chat because yeah. I have to go back to work. And then I get to ask you what you've been learning because I, I just realized I guess we're at time and I didn't ask you that. Well, next time then. We'll have to do it again. Sounds good. Well, it's always lovely chatting with you. It's always lovely chatting with you. Ben Jaffe, thank you so much for being on Geekspeak. Al Troxel, thank you so much for being on Geekspeak. <laughs> See you later, Ben.